Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, before we jump into this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon, I want to remind you that Palace Coffee Company is still giving $1 from every cause latte sold this month and next month to 24 Hours in the Canyon. This month's cause latte is the Espresso Tonic, and it is really good. Uh, it's made with Topo Chico, so that may be something that totally uh, catches your attention. And uh, it's very, very tasty. Cools you off on a very hot day. And then there will be another one next month. So remember, $1 from every cause latte comes to helping local cancer survivors. You can find Palace locations at, in Canyon on the Square. You can find the one downtown on Polk Street. There's one at 34th over by TJ Maxx and Jason's Deli. And then the newest one and largest one, actually, is over off of I-40 in Georgia. Uh, there in the shopping center there in Wolfland. So get by any of those locations, buy you a cause latte, and score us some money. Now let's get to this week's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse, Pam McMillan. Ryan, are you rested up this week? It's been a busy week, Pam. I'm not going to lie. It's been super busy, but I'm, 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 I'm trying to get better about going to bed at a regular hour. You know, I think that's so hard for our survivors. You know, it's one of those topics that isn't talked about a lot, but I feel like a lot of them have problems going to sleep, staying asleep and um, with everything that's going on. Yeah, this has been one of those topics, Pam, that we've talked about and tried to find and looked and searched and wanted to, to cover for quite some time, right? Yes. And here we are. We finally, after what, a year and a half, we're, we're covering sleep and issues related to cancer survivors. I'm so excited, right? I, I am too. I'm finally um, excited. We found a guest to speak on sleep and hopefully we will feel re well rested after his advice. <laughs> at least have some good, at least have some great ideas and things we can implement, right? Some homework. Some That's homework. Right. Always leave our listeners with homework. So yeah, you're right. So we're super excited. Let me introduce our, speak, our uh, speaker today to join us on the podcast is Dr. Alan David Haber, uh, is chief of the section of pulmonology, sleep, and critical care medicine. Now he's at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, and we've had a few uh, speakers from Fox Chase. We're super thankful for the folks there. That's a part of the Temple Medical System. We're super excited and thankful they've, they've shared their expertise with us. So Dr. Haber, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm doing well. well I just wanted, to, just wanted to comment on Pam's hope that you'll feel rested after this conversation. I, I'm fearful that I just put people to sleep with the discussion, which is <laughs> not intended, but if that happens and people awake rested, it's so much better. Sure, you know, we- They're we, gonna pause and take a little nap first. Yeah, maybe. Then, implement, implement your tips. You know, it's funny you bring that up. We did, we did a uh, guided meditation uh, podcast recently, and um, we kind of put a disclaimer. If you're listening to this while you're driving in your car, please stop. <laughs> Do not Absolutely. continue because we didn't want people to go to sleep. But, you know, um, sleep is one of those things I think that uh, maybe uh, we take for granted. And when we have a good night's sleep, um, and I know there's a lot of times that we struggle with sleep for whatever reason, but let's just start really kind of at the basics, Dr. Haber, and let's talk about how much sleep should we get? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. 
So it varies based on age, for sure. So, and as one for people that have had children certainly know, and raising infants that they are sleeping like you know twelve hours out of twenty four hours or more sometimes at birth, and and over time it it decreases. It, the the best estimate is somewhere between seven and nine hours for adults. Um, when when you get into the adult population, um, you know kids really need more. Uh, and, um, you know, the struggle sometimes is kind of how to get those seven to nine hours. Uh, and, I, and I would say that that's, that's not written in stone. So there are, there are individuals that just function very well on shorter sleep cycles, as it turns out. Uh, and they know who they are typically. They, they just, their body doesn't want to get more than six hours of sleep. They're completely functional. But, but by and large, seven to nine is kind of what's recommended. Pam, do you get seven to nine hours every night? <laughs> I try to get eight. I'm good with eight. Oh. Right in the middle. <laughs> yeah, you know, I try. That's the key. And um, what kind of sleep disorders do cancer survivors face? Oh, well, it's a whole range of different things they, that they face. Certainly the most common one that I think probably Pam, you see and folks at the center report is insomnia. Um, uh probably happens somewhere upwards of 50% of, of cancer patients uh, have it. And insomnia, you know, insomnia isn't a disease, so to speak. That is, it's a, it's a constellation of, of symptoms and, um, and a restriction in sleep hours that can arise from a variety of different illnesses or causes. So think of it like headache or stomach pain. It's, it's not a, it's not a diagnosis in itself. It's, it's a, um, and it's defined specifically as either having, I think as, as maybe somebody pointed out earlier, uh, difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, kind of premature awakenings or, or early awakenings. And then, and then it's coupled with um, a, uh, a functional component of the definition, which is that you have that plus you have some sense that you're not you know, functioning on six cylinders or in Texas, eight cylinders. I don't know how many cylinders you have down there, but... Uh, but uh, that, that you're um, in attention, mood issues, can um, performance issues at, at work, struggles with relationships. You know, there's some consequence to that sleep disruption, or at least a perceived consequence to that sleep disruption. That's kind of the definition of insomnia. And so when you, and then, and that's usually also there's a time component to that as well, which is that it should happen, you know, roughly at least three times a week, and and for at least. A month to three months, depending on what your definition is. So it's, it's got to be a fairly frequent event. And that's the probably the most common one, Pam. Um, but then we see, I see a number of patients actually with sleep disordered breathing. Um, I came at this as a pulmonologist, kind of my background. And so there's a whole interesting sideboard about why why the heck a pulmonologist is talking about sleep. And that's itself is sorry, uh, historical context. But um, uh, sleep, uh, issues with breathing during sleep is a, is a key one. So sleep apnea, the most common one, certainly. And then there's a, a number of other ones that happen. Uh, restless legs is one, um, which is, uh, which is really not a sleep disorder. Uh, it, it has a sleep correlate, which is what we call periodic movement disorder. People that move their legs during sleep, but restless leg syndrome by definition is an awake sensation. It's not, it doesn't arise out of sleep. It's something that interferes with sleep and therefore gets grouped under kind of sleep disorders. Um, and then other ones are the high, what we call hypersomnia is the ones where 
Um, people are excessively sleepy. Um, not so much, well, sometimes linked to uh, cancer and, and specifically some of the treatment issues of cancer, but then just independently, some patients have uh, other um, uh, need for increased sleep, narcolepsy being the most common one in that category. So you talked about sleep apnea. What are some signs like or red flags that people should be aware of that maybe you are suffering from sleep apnea? Well, I am suffering from sleep apnea, as it turns out. <laughs> I don't think that question was actually directed to me specifically, but, but I, it, my story is a little bit instructive there as well because I had zero symptoms of sleep apnea. So it really, it, it's, um, so the most common way somebody shows up with sleep apnea is because a bed partner, somebody who's observing somebody sleeping at night, um, comments that there's, uh, that there's issues with breathing or you're having issues with breathing at night. I, I find it um, uh, interesting that, that, and I fell into the same trap, that if, if I ask people, do they snore, invariably they say no. If I ask their partners, do, does the individual snore, invariably they say yes. And, uh, and I was in that same category. I assumed I didn't snore until people basically told me, yes, you do snore. <laughs> and you have these funny sounds that you're making when you're sleeping at night. And I'm a sleep physician. I mean, I do this for a living. And it took uh, the observation really of, of my wife and kids to say, you know, you, you, you should get checked. And, and we can get into the testing, but ultimately I tested, I did a home test, which is one of the ways we diagnose sleep apnea. Wake up periodically. One of the parts, the components of that testing is monitoring your oxygen level. I would wake up, look at the oxygen number, it was low. I said, this can't be right. It's like, it's the wrong finger. I have to move it to the other hand. I, I had every aspect of denial for this. <laughs> and then I, I, at the end of the day, I, I actually had an opportunity to look at the study and said, Lord, I, I really do have sleep apnea. <laughs> so, but getting back to symptoms. So mine, I was asymptomatic, but most commonly it's a bed partner's observation. Uh, and it's a sense of really just having unrefreshing sleep. So it's the classic is somebody who um, comes to the office and says, you know, I, I, I sleep, you know, seven, eight, nine hours. I get the requisite number of hours of sleep. But I wake up and it feels like I haven't slept at all. Um, I'm, I'm tired. I can't stay awake during daytime hours. I, I have difficulty at school or at work. Um, there are some other features of it. Waking up with a morning headache, dry mouth is a classic one uh, upon awakening. It uh, turns out going to the bathroom at night is uh, what we call frequency. Also can be a sign of sleep apnea. And so uh, urologists are kind of tuned into this. Um, and it's just a very common condition. It's really most of, a lot of what I do in sleep medicine relates to sleep apnea because it's just such a, a common problem. Does um, ob obesity have an effect on that? Yeah, I'm sorry, I should mention that for sure. Yeah, there's certain risk factors for it, absolutely. Obesity being one, um, but not the only one, certainly. Um, there's genetic predisposition. So sleep apnea tends to run in families, sometimes because body habits also runs in families, possibly, but maybe for other reasons. There's some hormonal links to it. So premenopausal, in the premenopausal state, women are relatively protected against sleep apnea, but postmenopausal, they tend to get it with the same frequency that men do. Um, typically, uh, obesity tends to be linked to neck size. And so some of the questionnaires we look at actually measure neck size as a marker for that. Um, so obesity is definitely a, a factor, not the only factor, but it's also an important treatment aspect because losing weight is, you can get rid of sleep apnea for those people that have it if you're starting off heavy to begin with with weight loss. Wow. And I guess, you know, um, 
that's interesting when you said a home sleep study. Can can you talk about that? Because I've always just heard about going somewhere. Yeah, to absolutely. Place <laughs> to do a sleep study. Yeah, in the old days, we used to have to bring people into the lab to get a sleep study done, which meant getting wired like you're going up in a moonshot. You know, you basically have a bunch of um, electrodes that are stickers that are placed on the scalp. There's um, belts that are used. There's um, there's microphones for snoring. You're looking at limb movements. There's a bunch of different ways that you're being watched, physiologically watched overnight. And then you're sleeping in some, you know, in some hospital bed somewhere. They try to make it reasonably comfortable. So at least you get a full mattress or a double maybe, but, <laughs> but it's not quite the same as sleeping at home. Um, and it turns out that you can actually diagnose it in most patients much more simply by doing a home sleep study. So home sleep study doesn't have as many um, uh, attachments. So it doesn't monitor, interestingly, a home sleep study does not monitor sleep. It monitors movement. So it uses what's called an actigraph. And an actigraph is um, you now on Apple Watches, you have all sorts of devices that monitor movement and activity. It just monitors how, how much the body's moving. And, and typically when people are asleep, they have less body movement. And so you can identify sleep on a home sleep study with a measure of movement. And then you're simply looking at oxygen level. There's a microphone that picks up snoring. And then there's a couple simple belts that you wear around the chest and abdomen that and your belly that look at breathing pattern. Uh, and then uh, there's a, 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 a very small uh, monitor that's placed under the nose that looks at airflow, how air moves in and out. It's pretty simple. You take it home, you, sometimes it's mailed to you, you wear it overnight, you mail it back or you bring it back. And then you know within a couple of days, you'll get a reading on it. Wow, I had no idea. Pam, I yeah. technology has increased light years. That's, that's impressive. Yeah, because I'm sure um, the mo more comfortable and more realistic you can make it as your normal daily activities and going to bed than right. going to the hospital or going to a, a center uh, makes it probably more accurate. Yeah, I mean, the, the one, you're sleeping in your bed, so that really does reflect what you usually do. And two, the, the worst scenario is going, to, is going to the sleep lab and staying awake the whole night in the sleep lab, <laughs> which doesn't do anybody any good. So you can't make a diagnosis. And yeah, so being at home is the only benefit. So let's talk about some of the causes. You know, we talked about the insomnia, the hypersomnia, of course, sleep apnea and restless leg. Um, as it relates to cancer survivors, is it is it due to chemo or radiation or the stresses yeah. or kind of, let's talk about some of that. Yeah, absolutely. So it depends a little bit on which we're talking about. Let's take insomnia to start just because that tends to be the most common symptom. And so um, you know, there's lots of different causes and contributing factors for insomnia. You sleep is kind of this funny entity where you kind of just have to turn your brain off. Um, you, you can't, you know, the more you try to fall asleep, the more you're, you're just going to stay awake. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, that's a tell myself. I'm just very blessed with, emptying my head it's just <laughs> there's not much there to begin with but somehow at the night i just lie down and it's i have largely zero difficulty um but but very clearly um there are many individuals that that have a lot on their monitors are very thoughtful you know kind of ruminative they uh it's you to, to sleep you just have to kind of just wipe that clean and so there tend to be um you know personality factors that sometimes uh, impact on on insomnia. People that are just generally more anxious, or um, typically depression, is a common contributing factor for sleeplessness, and it's that's probably bi-directional as well. 
insomnia sometimes triggers depression in people that are so inclined to, to have depression. Um, so, so the ability to kind of relax and, and empty your head, that, that's part of it. Uh, there's, uh, cancer patients are dealing with anxiety frequently. And when we see it during treatment, we see it in diagnosis, we see it during treatment, we see it in survivors, we see it every time somebody comes in for a scan uh, and, and there's a certain anxiety that just goes along with that. And so it's not so uncommon that people couple of weeks before they're due for their next visit, they'll start to have sleep issues because they're anxious about what that visit's gonna look like. Uh, pain is a major issue with sleep. So that anything that disrupts your comfort at night um, is, uh, is, is a, a factor. Um, there's uh, hormonal imbalance. This was one that, um, that I kind of saw firsthand. My, my late wife passed away from cancer. And so, um, and for her, it was, she was in her 40s. She started on therapy and it triggered premature menopause, uh, her chemotherapy, which was not uh, interesting, not only not anticipated, that is, it, it certainly is well known, but I don't think ever discussed by her physicians. I certainly didn't think about it. And yet they, there you have it. And, and it, it very clearly changed her sleep pattern as women that are postmenopausal, perimenopausal states do. So to the extent that your treatment triggers menopause that will have an effect on it. And then there's some of the treatments that are clearly impact as well. Um, steroids being a common one that's used in conjunction with cancer treatments will tend to uh, make uh, induce more insomnia. People need certain breathing medications. Sometimes that can interfere with, with sleep continuity. They tend to be somewhat stimulatory. There are, when you choose antidepressants, or if one is on antidepressants, uh, or if one if they're started during um, uh, the course of treatment for cancer or or in survivorship, it's helpful to it's important to let whoever's prescribing know um, which um, what your symptoms are. So if it's if it's insomnia, then it makes more sense to choose antidepressant that actually is going to promote sleep as opposed to choosing one that promotes wakefulness because some patients with depression their issue is hypersomnia and they want something that's a little bit more arousing. So there's, um, there are all of those factors that, that I think contribute to, um, to the issues of insomnia. For, for sleep apnea, there's some other ones that you can add in the, into that context as well. Um, the one that's most common from our standpoint or one that's been reported anyways are head and neck patients that get cancer treatment for head and neck issues. Uh, particularly if it involves surgery. So when you do that, that now you we have we have a very active cancer center. They do a lot of head and neck cancer surgery here. They do they place grafts that in, in place of the cancer that's been resected or taken out. And so sometimes that just changes the physical parameters of the airway, which then can trigger sleep apnea uh, in, in patients. So we're kind of cognizant of that as well. Um, <coughs> There's uh, restless legs is, uh, is attached to uh, iron deficiency. So to the extent that your cancer makes you iron deficient uh, or if you're iron deficient for other reasons, but sometimes uh, blood loss and GI cancers make you iron deficient. I have the occasional patient where that's how we diagnose their cancers because they come in with restless leg syndrome and you measure an iron level and their iron level is low. And they say, well, why is your iron level low? And they go to see their GI doc and they get evaluated. That's their new, that's the reason they would, that's the, which actually is, is, is really a love in, in many ways. It's nice to be able to make, draw that connection it's, uh, where, where you can kind of find your cancer early. Pam, I, I, uh, I took away several things right there. I wanna go back to a couple of things that Dr. Haber said. Uh, one is it is 
not out of the norm if you have cancer or have had cancer to have a sleep disorder. So you're not you're not weird, you're not abnormal. It is common. That's like, you know, and I know that's something that maybe, well, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's no, it's it's probably potentially from maybe one of your treatments or um, uh, the situations that you're in. But the other thing is, and here's this word, Pam, that comes up all the time in all of our podcasts of communication, that you need to have open and honest <laughs> communication with your physician about your symptoms. Dr. Haber, you said that it may be because of, you know, iron, it may be because you're having this and you get diagnosed or, or whatever the case may be, but letting your, letting the physician know exactly what your symptoms are so that maybe if they do feel like you need to be on an antidepressant for a short period of time or, or whatever period of time, they're, they're, they're giving you the right one, whether it's you're sleeping all the time or you're not sleeping at all. Yeah. That's, I'm sorry, Pam. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, you know, um, we live in a world that we want a quick fix. And so how well do the medications, the sleep medications, the antidepressant help with this sleep disorder? I'm going to go back to that one in a minute. Uh, but I would also kind of add to, um, to Ryan's comment. The, uh, you know, we take sleep for granted. A lot of times sleep is just kind of um, what happens when you're, you kind of, you assume that one, there's just too much interesting things going on during daytime hours that people tend to assume that they can just kind of give up on sleep. Uh, and so uh, you you just don't think about it a whole lot. And your doctors don't either, generally, unless you're seeing a sleep doc. And so they frequently are not going to ask the question and you're not so inclined necessarily to talk about it. Um, and so I, I would kind of emphasize that point that Ryan that you made that it's just important to, to discuss what's on your mind because it's known. It's just it's not, it's usually not on, on everybody's radar. Um, antidepressants and sleep and how long, how rapidly will they work? Um, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. So I can't really speak necessarily to how fast it's going to be for an antidepressant to take effect to address their depression. Usually I assume, and, and Pam, you probably know this better than I do in terms of how long uh, that process, you know, I, I think of it in, in the order of weeks, but I, I, I don't, do that for a living. So uh, I apologize if I misspeak there. Um, we do use sometimes low dose antidepressants specifically as an in indicated for sleep. So doxepin is the classic one where, where in its antidepressant dose, it's much high, it's a much higher dose and you're treating it for depression. In very, very low doses, three to 10 milligrams at night, as opposed to 100 milligrams or 150 milligrams a day, um, it actually can be used as, as a sleep aid. The Usually with, if we're talking about acute insomnia, that is, there's a short-term issue, you, you need to get somebody kind of over the hurdle. You hope that over time they will, they'll adapt to whatever is driving their insomnia or, or the circumstances change, they no longer have those same circumstances. Uh, then we'll usually use some other sleep aid, typically not an antidepressant necessarily, um, but one of the more characteristic sleep aids that, that you hear about. Um, Ambient or something similar. We usually use them very cautiously because of a number of potential side effects, um, and they are usually faster onset than than um, cognitive behavioral therapy. But in the long run, cognitive behavioral therapy is a much better fit and fix, particularly when you talk about chronic insomnia. So people that just have this either have a long-standing history of it, or it's, or it's kind of evolved over a long period of time. 
Well, Pam and Dr. Haber, I can I can speak to that. Um, those of you that have been listening to our podcast, you know, from really from the beginning, kind of know my background and my story of being uh, told that um, I, they thought I had lymphoma. And um, a period of time passed between when I was told that to when I can have my my biopsy. And um, I distinctly remember, without question, I could not turn my brain off. And I have a hard enough time anyway. <laughs> right, Pam? I have a hard enough time anyway. And um, but then you throw well, on disagree. <laughs> you throw on the fact that they're saying you have lymphoma. This is classic. We need to do a biopsy. We're going to do treatment. We're going to have this. We're going to have that. So I can relate to our cancer survivors from that aspect because I could not sleep. I wasn't sleeping at all. And uh, my my uh, primary doctor prescribed Ambien, and I was really hesitant to take it because I was like, ah, uh, you know, I'll just take a Benadryl. Oh, uh, that didn't work. Oh, I'll do, you know, so I did. I ended up taking the, at the request of my wife, God lover, uh, took the Ambien and it made all the difference in the world. Um, of course, very short term, once everything was determined that it was not lymphoma, suddenly my concerns of cancer went away. Um, but I know that, um, yeah, it, it, it makes a, a big difference in being able to uh, if you're not able to turn your brain off and you're worried about, and you're anxious about, and you're very uptight about things. Um, yeah, it, it's a game changer. How important is it for, you know, there's a buzzword, uh, sleep hygiene. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime you Google sleep and cancer, are you getting, uh, do you have a good sleep hygiene? <laughs> yeah. Talk to us about that. I love that word, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. Like rural hygiene or yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is, it, but it, it's actually it's very apt definition i i like it because it it, it really speaks to the important question uh, how important is it um i think it's important it's i think that it's always part of an insomnia treatment plan to make sure that you um you you set the stage um for uh you know, that would be conducive to sleep. So you need to have realistic expectations. And when people, patients, individuals, you know, if you classically, I'll have folks that have schedules that where they, they're really just not very regulated. That is, they sleep when they want, they eat when they want, exercise on occasion, maybe not. Uh, you know, they, they're in bed for hours at a time, balancing the checkbook or listening to Tchaikovsky or whatever it is that they're doing it in, uh, for an extended period. Um, and it's, it's, it, it's hard then to assume that you're going to be able to kind of hit, turn lights out and fall asleep in the way that, that you want to fall asleep. So sleep hygiene for me is, is, um, it's like setting the table for, for, you know, for, you know, a, a fancy formal dinner, you know, if you, you know, if you have two spoons and, you know, no napkins or whatever, it's, it's just not going to work. You're going to have the effect that you want. So. Uh, and what that usually means is is uh, some simple strategies. And what I tell patients, you know, one, no, or try not to nap late in the day. It's, you know, sleep has a couple of different mechanisms for why we need sleep. And one of them is just the cumulative sleep debt. So when you discharge that debt, that is when you pay it back with a nap. So you now have, it's going to be very hard then to kind of go back to sleep when, at an intended hour if you do that late. Um, you know, avoiding caffeine late, for sure, avoiding exercise late, 
it's important to drink fluids, but probably not so good to drink a gallon of, you know, or an hour before you're going to bed. So you want to kind of time that appropriately. It's, it's kind of funny. We, you know, we have, no, again, for people that have kids or raise kids, we have no problem kind of just, you know, laying down the hammer and, uh, about when they, when's bedtime, when's wake time, you, you're, you're kind of just all over, all over those kids about making sure they get enough sleep and, and regulating them. I mean, if you think from when they're born and their sleep is just all over the map uh, in a 24 hour period, and somehow you have to get them to sleeping in a, in a fixed time frame, And it, 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 you know, some of it is just developmental, but, but some of it is social. You know, as we socialize kids to kind of when to go to sleep and wake up, and it's remarkable how we're good about doing that when we tell somebody else that they have to do it, but we're really lousy about doing it for ourselves. And so I think that's the argument that I typically give to people, and, and I'm as much a culprit as anybody, um, but you have to, it really comes down to, if you want good quality sleep, you have to prioritize what's important to set it up. And, and uh, you know, caffeine late in the day is a problem, uh, all the things we, we just talked about, even to the extent of, you know, whether your pet sleeps with you in the bed, whether the bedroom is cold, whether you run the television on through the night, there's all sorts of different aspects that we really try to move away from if possible. What about screen time? We're all connected to our cell phones and we like to scroll. And I've always heard one to two hours before bed, no screen time. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that too. I mean, that's certainly the party line from the sleep community mm -hmm. uh, is, and the reason is that there's, um, we have what's called a circadian rhythm, kind of this, this drive to be wakeful at times and sleep at other times. And it's a 24 hour cycle. And when you, um, when you shine light or, or, or see lighted screens at times when it, it sh we should be in the dark phase of the circadian rhythm, then it's going to reset your brain and push your circadian rhythm in, uh, forward so that you or or in advance uh, delay it so that you'll have a hard time falling asleep when you, when you intend to. So the the best and this gets into what we call circadian rhythm disorders. We didn't talk about that, but this um, the the usual advice that we give for folks is that is that sunlight is important in or daylight is important exposure in the morning and dark is the important exposure at night. And when you have artificial light that you introduce later in the evening, then it's going to make it hard to sleep or at least to have your circadian rhythm kind of set. I, I not, I'm not aware of this study, but it looks like I just came across this recently and I have to read it more in depth, but it talks about interruptions in circadian rhythm and then tying that together with, uh, with, with survivor outcome, with, uh, with cancer outcomes, this is specific to cancer patients. And the notion that, um, that having a, 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 a an appropriate circadian rhythm, if you measure it by hormonal levels or melatonin levels, uh, and you're active during the day and sleep at night, you're, you're better from a survival standpoint than those people that were less active during daytime hours where their circadian rhythm wasn't quite as strongly regulated. So it's, I, I'd avoid the screen time. It's hard, Pam, as you say, everybody likes to do it, but uh, it's, it's best to try not to. I mean, you're best off just getting a book, <laughs> newspaper book. You know, as long as the news isn't bothering you too much and keeping you awake at night, something that's stressful to, you know, Stephen King novels are probably not your best option there. <laughs> yeah, and 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 as you said, uh, not a book on your screen, but a a real book. <laughs> Ideally, you know, now screens come with these backlighting arrangements, so you can actually 
have less like their nighttime screen options guys specifically addressing this so that one actually is a better option than just the usual bright light screen yeah pam i know that um we kind of have a, a semi normal routine and i'll say semi normal you know getting ready for bed as dr haber said kind of a, a schedule and it's funny sometimes when when you know if you're able to stay kind of on a schedule it's funny when you know your your bedtime becomes later and all of a sudden you're like man i'm tired i, I should have already been in bed and your body just gets adapted to that so you know if you don't have as, as you said kind of that routine that hygiene that schedule i challenge you to, to really try to set that you know in stone like as you said it make it's, a, it's it's important that you make time for yourself. And that's something we say too at the Survivorship Center, Pam, you have to make time for yourself. Um, if it's important, you'll make time for it. Right. You mentioned caffeine. Um, what about alcohol? Uh, yeah, it, you know, it's, certainly it's, it's a problem when people drink alcohol to help promote sleep. So that's the one area in particular that we very strongly push back on which is this notion that people, uh, individuals, um, will will have drinks at night, and because that because they feel that that helps promote sleep onset. The issue with it is that it you develop dependence on it, so it disrupts sleep chronically. If you if you then your brain just gets kind of wired to have an alcohol bath <laughs> before bed, so it's not it, that that can be problematic. And it tends to be short acting. So there's usually a rebound insomnia that typically happens later in the night if you if you use alcohol as the means of trying to promote sleep onset. Uh, so I think alcohol in moderation or you know earlier on is fine. I think it's just when I know it's fine, but it's or I believe it's fine. But when you're using it as a as an aid for sleep, that's all if you're drinking to help you fall asleep, then that's a sign that we probably need to go in a different direction. Yeah. So you talked also about the sleep cycle. Can you tell us what happens um, when we sleep? Yeah, so there's um, the sleep cycle. When we, first of all, so different stages of sleep, we'll start with that. Uh, they can largely be grouped into REM and non-REM sleep. But by and large, we talk about, when, when we look at a sleep study, we didn't talk about what a sleep study is exactly, but it's an EEG, part of it is an EEG tracing of the brain pattern during sleep. And we can define it as, as stage one, two, three, REM. Those are the four stages that we look at. Uh, stage one is kind of the early stage where you're kind of drifting into sleep. So it's the first stage of sleep. Usually that's the stage you'll get to when you transition from, from wake to sleep. You'll go through brief periods of stage one. Uh, stage three or delta sleep is the one that's um, the deepest level of sleep. REM is the one that, and, and it, it occurs roughly 25% of the time. The most common stage actually is stage two sleep when you just look at it numerically. REM is the one that we think about most. And therefore, we, we frequently just divide them into REM and non-REM. REM is rapid eye movement sleep. And that's the one that is associated with dreams and um, some other unusual sleep disorders as well that are connected to REM sleep in particular. Um, but that's the one where breathing tends to be most irregular at night and in particular for sleep apnea, all the muscles are relaxed during REM, just an interesting physiologic kind of component. Because you have dreams, they're the, the parts of your body that are active besides your mind, the, the dream center uh, is 
eye movements, so therefore you'll see eye movements and your breathing patterns. So the diaphragm works, but your muscles are inhibited. And the reason that's important is because if you're dreaming about something, then you would have the inclination to do that something if you actually had motor function at the time. And there is this entity of this of the interesting sleep disorders. And some, I, I have a couple of patients in the cancer center that have this, which is a REM sleep behavior disorder. So REM sleep behavior disorder is a lesser known sleep problem where people act out their dreams. So they'll, and, and their bed partners are, are acutely aware of it. So you'll be dreaming that somebody's being assaulted or um, or you're in, a, you're in a fight and you're, because that's the dream. And if your muscles are not inhibited, you actually will start to lash out and to strike. And, and there are reports of bed partners being injured because of, of this condition, REM sleep behavior disorder, the individual. And, and, the, and when they wake up in the morning, the, they'll know, they'll know, they'll remember the content of the dream. They won't know that they hit their bed partner, but they'll know that they were engaged in a fight. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really one of these very remarkable sleep disorders um, that happens. So speaking to the different stages, that's one that where, where REM is relevant. It's stage stage three, getting into a deep or stage of sleep is felt to be what's restorative. So you wanna be able to try to get into, uh, into stage three sleep as well as REM sleep. Yeah. There's a lot that goes on while we sleep. Yeah. Yeah. One, of, yeah, one of the ones I worry about the most for sleep personally, it's, it's not so related on the cancer side, but there's also now emerging data about the importance of, of sleep in clearing the, the abnormal proteins that start to accumulate in your brain that from the activity of the day, with the notion being that, that um, limited sleep hours, that is if you don't get the sleep that you're supposed to be getting, you have a greater tendency towards accumulation of these abnormal proteins with the concern that it, it potentiates dementia or it can lead to dementia, memory loss, those, those issues. And so there are, there was a study came out not that long ago that looked at the, um, and these are associations, it's hard to talk about causality, but that, that individuals that, that habitually got short sleep cycles, it was less than six hours habitually, uh, were maybe 30% more likely to be, to have an associated memory loss or dementia. Again, hard to know chicken and egg in that situation, whether it's the sleep loss that causes dementia or there's some early feature of your tendency towards dementia that manifests as sleep disruption. But either way, it's probably not a good thing not to sleep. So yeah. especially when you shortchange yourself, yeah. Wow, I was just about to say, yeah, regardless, sleep is important. I mean, yeah. that, that is, Pam, that's, to me, that's the takeaway from this, you know, all of the, the, the information that we've covered is, is really points back to just how important something as simple as sleep. I say simple, something as sleep is. Don't underestimate sleep. Yeah. No. Wow. So what for our listeners that maybe are thinking, Oh man, this all hits home. What's the first step that they should do to get help? Yeah. So as, as Ryan pointed out earlier, you just need to talk to your communication and you do as well, Pam, just the importance of communication. You need to kind of define what's, what the trouble is. And there are, um, you know, we, if it's a breathing issue related to sleep, the most commonly, actually, if it's any issue, frankly, related to sleep, it, 
one can't get a referral to a sleep specialist. The sleep specialists are generally trained. They usually come into the field either as lung specialists as I did because there's such a strong component of breathing issues related to sleep that it was just a natural connection for pulmonologists, for lung specialists to get interested in sleep. But there are also uh, psychiatrists that have a, a very strong interest in sleep and really were the, the, the group that, that promoted and that did a lot of the basic research and understanding the physiology of sleep. So, so that's a group. Neurologists are very vested in, in sleep issues. And so uh, some of them are, are board certified in sleep medicine. There is a board certification process to see a, just the same way you can see a you know, certified gastroenterologist, you can see a certified sleep physician. Most primary care docs, though, have a pretty good handle on some of the basics uh, in terms of um, when to, what things they can handle or what things they may be able to handle and when to refer. Uh, if you think that there's a sleep disorder breathing, you always are going to need some type of diagnostic study. Insomnia is more of a verbal communication issue. There's really little testing that goes on for that one. Uh, so it depends, I think, on the expertise of the, of the, of the physician or, or uh, advanced practice clinician that's taking care of that individual, uh, what they can handle, what they would send out for a sleep physician to see. So I think bottom line is you need to speak up. I mean, that's, yeah. that's really what we're talking about. And, yeah. you know, we've talked about this before, Pam, is don't assume because maybe the physician or nurse practitioner doesn't ask about it, don't assume that it's not related. And so, okay. you know, we, we've talked about this, Dr. Haber, several times of being your own advocate, being your, yeah. you are the best advocate. Yeah. You know, we have this discussion, you know, if you see something, say something. I think I think the, the corollary of that is if you feel something, say something. Right. You know, if you're feeling something that's just not right, say something. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, Pam, I I um uh, I, I think this has been incredibly number one, I've learned a lot. It's very it's very uh intense. I mean, I like science, and that's that's my you know, the science behind some of the things is, is very interesting to me. But I think the, the best thing is, yeah. Um, making sure that we do everything we can do within our power to try to set the, as you said, Dr. Haber, set the table, set the table so that we get a good night's sleep. I mean, I remember telling my kids, you got to go to bed, just as you said, it's time for bed. And then, you know, what would we do? We'd go in the living room and watch TV for another two hours or something. You know? <laughs> so maybe we need to treat ourselves like we did our kids, you know, rather than saying, uh, do as I say, not as I do, we need mm. to be doing those things, right? Absolutely. <laughs> start with some good sleep hygiene um, right. techniques. Thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge with our listeners. Um, I know I've uh, learned something today, but we like to leave our listeners with the Pete's powerful moment. Do you have a powerful moment that you could share with our listeners? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I do, and it kind of speaks to the point, again, this concept that if you feel like something, say something. So I had a patient not that long ago that had, um, lung cancer. She's in her maybe 60s or 70s. Uh, she was not my patient at the time. She went through cancer treatment and is doing well from that. Also has a background of, of lupus and, um, and then reported fatigue for a long period of time for um, uh, I'm sure years. And it was kind of attributed to either the cancer treatment or the lupus. Uh, and, and this was kind of bone crushing for her. It was really like, I can't I, I really can't kind of be up and about. And, and in particular, um, she was um, 
but she was having difficulty interacting with her granddaughter, who I guess I can't remember if she was caring for her or just wanted to spend time with her, but so she just she really just couldn't enjoy the, the time. So she she was sent to me. And as we kind of fleshed out the conversation, we really drew the distinction between kind of fatigue and, and sleepiness. And so as she just tended to be really very sleepy during daytime hours. And so uh, we ended up doing uh, what's called a, a, we did an overnight sleep study followed by, it, this is the most boring test in the history of medicine is, is the polysomnogram, the sleep study followed by what's called a multiple sleep vacancy test. So, so the test is like a 24 hour um, study in a sense. You come in at night, you get a sleep study in the formal fashion with all the leads and wires and all the rest of it. You then wake up the next morning, you have to stay in the lab about an hour or so after you stay in bed clothes and you're staying in the room, you can have breakfast and all, but, after, but you then are given the opportunity to take a nap. And every two hours throughout the day for five nap opportunities, you'll go in, you, you're in the bedroom, they'll turn lights out and you, you'll have um, you know, 20 minutes to sleep. And then, and then if you sleep, also, they'll let you sleep for 15 minutes, wake you up, and then you do it again and two hours later and two hours later and two hours later. So it's it's wow. it's just <laughs> the tour de force. And so we ended up setting her up for that study. And sure enough, she she slept fine at night. During the day, she had at least she I forget how many times, I think she fell asleep every opportunity that she had, five out of five bad opportunities, which is unusual. Two of those had REM onset. So REM onset sleep in a nap is characteristic of narcolepsy. And so she had, and so she met the, the definition of narcolepsy. Uh, and I called her with that and said, you know, this is what you have, and this is how we treat it. And the, the treatment is actually is fairly straightforward. There are a number of agents that are now on the market to treat the, day, the excess of daytime sleepiness of narcolepsy. I think her physicians either had trouble kind of putting together the symptom with actually a condition or, or excess of sleepiness. I'm just going to read, this was her comment, actually, she, she wrote a, a message back to me about all of this. And um, I think just using her words, I think it's more powerful. Before the diagnosis, the exhaustion I speak of here restrains you from showering, dressing, and locks you into a better sofa. And, and she was then labeled to say this chronic fatigue. And now she says that um, in a couple of months after the diagnosis, now the only day she spends in the sofa are rainy days. I take walks with my granddaughter, TV dinners, or anything of the past. And it's uh, that woman, I, she's lovely. And every time I see her, she just, I just get the biggest smile. It makes me feel great. I have a wonderful sure. day afterwards. It's, it's uh, you know, it's not so common that you impact so, so dramatically in sleep medicine in somebody's life, but that was, that was my peace moment. So yeah, I hope, I hope that one qualifies, but, but it's always a great moment for her. That's well, awesome. And again, it speaks to the power of sleep. I mean, it, it's, yeah, but, it can be life-changing as it was for that woman. Yeah. Uh, wow. You know, um, golly, I, I can't imagine. I mean, luckily, I, I feel like I'm in a good place with my sleep. I feel rested. And I just can't imagine going through continual nights of issues um, and, 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 and then the changing and getting the sleep that you need. It's, it, it is, I imagine it's incredibly life-changing. Dr. Haber, thank you so much uh, for sharing with us. Um, thank you for sharing um, your expertise and really enlightening, I think, hopefully some folks who struggle, Pam, with their sleep. Yes, most definitely. 
Yeah. So homework, Pam, we talked about homework at the very beginning. I think we need to leave them with some homework is to try to set that table, get ready for sleep, practice your sleep hygiene, right, Pam? Yes. And then also, if you have, if you, if you, as Dr. Haber so poetically said, if you feel something, say something, if you're having problems with your sleep, make a point to make an appointment with your doctor, call the nurse, call the nurse practitioner, the PA, whoever it is that you're seeing, um, and really be, be your best advocate. That's the best thing. And if you have any questions, make sure you give us a call here at the center, 806-331-2400. That's just one last point. And one last point, if your spouse or bed partner ever says that something's going on in your sleep, believe them. Believe them. <laughs> They're probably right. Uh-oh. We might have a lot of referrals to the mm-hmm. sleep doctor. Yeah, that that's probably... <laughs> <laughs> I know mine would say there's problems. I, I'm sure, Pam, I don't know about yours, but I know that, uh, yeah, may not, may, but definitely listen to your bed partner. That is probably the most, as Dr. Haber, one of the most accurate uh, depictions of what goes on and what doesn't go on. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Dr. Haber. Thank you guys for listening. Share this podcast with those that maybe are struggling with sleep or you feel, uh, you know, they're always complaining about being tired and fatigued. Share that information with them and then make sure you join us next week for another great episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.